is Our American Stories, and this has become one of our favorite segments, our come-together segments. And just to give you an idea of some of the segments in the past you may have missed that you can go on our website and get. Bing and Bowie, it's the story of Bing Crosby and David Bowie getting together to record The Little Drummer Boy. One, this glam rocker with red hair, earrings, Bing Crosby, this old crooner. Well, Bing's kids wanted Bing to sing with Bowie. Bowie's mom wanted him to sing with Bing. Neither of them wanted to sing with each other. But then they met. They sized each other up. And then they started to sing together. And there was magic and chemistry. And they both saw it as the high point of their careers. Tremendous. We did an Aretha Franklin Carol King story about a woman from New York City and a woman from Memphis. Both very different lives, one black, one white, and they come together around a song called You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. And our favorite, the Zach and Jane story, and that was Zach Model, the owner of the Atlas Tool Works, a fourth-generation owner of a, a machine shop. And Jane Johnson, who was born on the west side of Chicago in a tough neighborhood, her father was never around. Her mom, well, she died when she was 16, and she was off to fend for herself. Her aunt got sick. She started taking care of her aunt finds a little local church group that trains her up for a job as a machinist. Zach sees her in graduation, offers her a job. This white owner and this young black lady are like father and daughter. It was a beautiful story. Again, the unlikely things that happen in life that bring people together. And today we saw a story that we wanted to feature from the Washington Post that started out like this. Quote, when Julie Dombo had hands, she once used them to write a letter to the editor. She was upset with a Republican governor, she told the Wichita Eagle, and the top 1% and the, quote, right-wing influences and deep-pocketed lobbyists. After Dombo lost her hands and feet in the aftermath of a robbery shooting last year, she met a man at a banquet named Mark Holden, a lawyer, a powerful one. In fact, Holden is senior vice president for Coke Industries, Kansas Governor Sam Brownback's top donor, owned by two of the most influential billionaires in Republican politics. But politics never came up, Dombo said. They became friends. Holden supported her at her shooter's sentencing hearing. Then on Monday, he and his wife gave Dombo a pair of -of state-of-the-art electronic prosthetics for Christmas. Dombo has her hands again, and she and Holden text all the time, even if politics is pulling the rest of this country apart. Wow, what a story. And for the rest of the story, we're joined now by both Julie and Mark. Thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. You bet. Julie, I want to start with you. Tell us a little bit about your life. We always start, no matter who we interview, we did Mario Andretti. We wanted to know where it started and where he got where he got. And it always starts as a child. Tell us about your early life, your parents, your work, and what gave your life fulfillment. Well, I grew up on a small family farm in rural Illinois, right along the Mississippi River. My dad was born uh, in the same house, and uh, he came from a giant farm family, too. My mother came from a very poor, poor uh, background herself, where uh, a lot of uh, her mom and her mom's sisters all worked ironing and cleaning houses, whatever they could uh, do to provide money for the family. So both my parents were uh, at kind of a hard upbringing, my mom even more than my dad, but they went on to have seven children. I was the second of the seven. And uh, we worked very hard. 
on the family farm. I uh, had to milk a cow every morning with my sister, and uh, we raised chickens and eggs and made our own uh, butter. And uh, my dad tried to was an entrepreneur. He tried to think of all kinds of ways to bring in extra money because mom stayed home with us kids, and uh, he had to provide for us. So uh, in the, uh, around 1960 to 65, he took a deed for caterpillar went out to pasture land, and he spent two years in his time after farming, a long day. He built a 40-acre lake that he stocked with catfish, and he was hoping to sell the catfish on the market, but so many fishermen asked to fish, he started uh, charging fishermen 50 cents to fish and 50 cents a pound for the fish. And once again, my sisters and I, started our own business cleaning the catfish because a lot of fishermen didn't want to take their fish home and do that at night. So we charged a dime of fish no matter what size. And we would sit down there every night after school and after all of our chores and clean fish until about 10, 10.30 at night. So uh, that's kind of how I worked on paying my way through college. Uh, also working in the cafeteria in college, and that's where I met my husband. I was sorting silverware, and he was running dishes. So uh, I have always worked very hard to get where I need to be. So has my family members, and so has my husband. I grew up uh, Democrat, and my mom and dad taught me to always help others less fortunate. There were always less fortunate people than myself. I went into teaching. Uh, first I taught preschool and elementary. Uh, I did that for 13 years and then decided I wanted to do more with kids. So as I was teaching, I went back to school at Wichita State, got my degree in counseling. And in 1989, I became an uh, elementary school counselor in Wichita for four years. And I worked with a lot of um, poverty kids, uh, very low-income minority kids and black kids especially. I started uh, a boys' club where I brought in mentors every week from the community to talk to the, the black boys at trying to um, get them to see that they could have a future if they would stay in school to get their education. Well, Julie, this is a, a life beautifully lived. And when we come back, we're going to find out the unlikely and terrible circumstance that brought you and Mark together, two unlikely people who got together. And this happens every day in this great country. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our come-together story featuring Julie Dombo and Mark Holden. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our Come Together segment. This week, it's Julie Dombo and Mark Holden. By the way, both from Kansas. Both Americans. Very different political leanings. But who cares? And that's so true so often in American life. In brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors. We learn to get along uh, more often than we know. And regrettably, the media doesn't feature enough of of that kind of activity together and generally focuses on the division. Uh, we tend to think differently about life and things. And we pick back up with Julie. And Julie, by the way, during the break, we were talking about uh, uh, cow hands and my little girl who we have a family farm and she goes back and, and dabbles in this. And she had a couple of days of doing this and she discovered cow hands. Tell, tell everybody what a cow hand is, Julie, for people who don't know what those two words mean. Well, when you first start milking a cow, your fingers get really sore, and it's tough. And so you have to just keep on going. It's like um, working on a muscle, and you have to develop what you call cow hands so that you can uh, grip and keep on squeezing till you fill the whole bucket with milk. Yep, no doubt. Now let's let's fast forward now to that day that changed your life forever, Julie. If you can, take us to that day of this terrible incident and then the aftermath. Well, it was August 11th, 2015. I just got done race walking my usual four miles around Derby, and I thought I would just run into a local AT&T store and ask him some questions about my phone. And uh, little did I know, there was a robbery in progress. I went in the store up to the counter, and I was digging in my purse to pull my phone out. And uh, the robber had circled back around behind me, and it looked like he was coming in the front door. And he was waving his gun up in the air, saying, this is what you think it is. It's no joke everybody to the back room and I was very scared very shocked I looked up grabbed my purse and said no and I went to try to leave the store and he blocked me and raised his gun that he had in his hand he pulled it out from some kind of back pants pocket or something when he was waving it and he aimed right at my chest. And I knew at that moment he was going to shoot me. And I tried to turn sideways. And he shot two bullets into my chest from about four feet away. And it went through, both bullets went through my arm, right arm. One went into my uh, lung cavity and the other up into my back and stopped a few inches from my spine. I fell to the ground, moaning, and said, you shot me, and he ran out the store. I balled up into a ball thinking I was going to die right there. I felt like I was going to bleed to death. Nobody was in the store. The two clerks had run out the back door, and I was the only person in the store by myself. Finally, a UPS gal came in, and then a woman from the driver's license came in, and they stayed with me until the ambulance came. And then you fell into a coma for six days, according to the paper. When you woke up, 
Your hands and feet had dried up and turned black. And it turns out your career ends with a quadruple amputation, Julie. This had to be just beyond, beyond awful for you. Talk about that. Talk about your husband and your family, how this affected your entire life. It was devastating. When I woke up out of the coma on the seventh day, I looked at my hands, and they were deep purple at that time. And my sister kept saying, I couldn't talk because I had a double vent in, and so all I had was my eyes to communicate. And I kept looking at the purple hands of my my sister, and she said, don't worry, they're going to fix them. But in the next several days and a couple weeks, I saw they were turning black just like a mummy. They were shriveled up and black, and I knew they weren't going to be able to save them. And they finally told me at uh, the end of August that they were going to have to amputate all four of them on September 6th and September 8th. I was so weak and so sick. I still was fighting for my life. I was on kidney dialysis. My kidneys had shut down. I had a lot of oxygen breathing because I had two-thirds of a missing lung. I was still fighting for my life every day. All I could think about was trying to stay alive and deal with the amputations if I lived. The reality of really happened when I finally got to rehab on day 77, and I spent the next 40 days in rehab trying to figure out this new life and what it was going to entail. And you had uh, the, the insurance company was going to pay for two hooks that you said looked like Edward Scissorhands. Uh, at least that's what you told yeah. the Post. But they would not cover the new hands you really wanted. Talk about that dilemma yeah. uh, as it relates to the insurance company, uh, Julie. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas will only pay for, under our prosthetics uh, policy, they will only pay for one pair of legs and one pair of hooks. Many Blue Cross Blue Shields across the United States in different states do pay for electronics. Missouri, Ohio, North Carolina, those are just some examples. But Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas is antiquated. They have not kept up with the times. They still want to give you the same hooks that people had in the early 1900s. That is all they want to pay for. And the hooks are very limited. You have to wear a harness. You can't pick stuff up off the floor because the harness holds you back. You can't do a lot of things. You can't use your phone. Uh, I can't dress myself. I can't do much of anything with the hooks except I did figure out how to hold a pen and write like a second grader with them. People's prosthetics got involved with me at the very beginning. They came to visit me the beginning of October when I was still recovering, and they helped get me up on prosthetic legs uh, for the first time. They followed me all through rehab. They've been a wonderful prosthetic company for me, but they also can't afford to give me the hands unless Blue Cross Blue Shield was willing 
to make an exception and pay for them. And they turned down my appeal. I had letters from uh, all of my OTPT doctors, prosthetists, everyone saying all the reasons why I needed these hands versus the hooks. But they turned the appeal down. Well, and for anybody, Julie, who's been involved in disputes with insurance companies over any number and types of treatments, uh, we can only imagine and, and empathize with what you had to struggle with. And now we turn to, and we just got a couple of minutes here, that meeting where you randomly bump into this guy named Mark Holden, and it's a banquet. And, well, talk about that banquet, just about a minute and a half here in that meeting, and then when we come back, we're going to bring Mark into the story. I wouldn't have been there except Wichita Crime Commission chooses a citizen hero each year, and they chose me for this honor. So that was the week of the trial, and my sister and my aunt were here in town, and we all went to that banquet, and I got up and spoke about my experience and how lucky I feel that I was alive. And uh, as I spoke at that banquet, uh, Mark was the keynote speaker talking about prison reform. And he was talking about prison reform, and when we come back, that had to surprise you. I think it surprises many folks when they find people from from the right are interested in stuff that people on the left are interested in. It also interests very often people on the right, things that people on the left are interested in. We don't sometimes know that these paths cross until we literally stumble upon one another. And that's what happened here at this banquet. Mark Holden, Julie Dumbo, a meeting, a chance meeting that changed both of their lives. Our Come Together story and series continues here on Our American Stories. Joining us after the break, Mark Holden of Coke Industries. our American stories and we continue with our come together story Julie Dombo, Mark Holden one uh, a Democrat, a traditional sort of left wing activist and Mark Holden a traditional Republican seen as sort of a right wing guy and yet here we are left and right joined together as it happens every day in American life and Mark, you have a tough act to follow as we talked, uh, talked about over the break and you had a tough act to follow at that banquet what brought you to that banquet, Mark, and what were you talking about? Well, I was asked to give a, the a keynote address at the Wichita Crime Commission. It was their 63rd annual dinner, and um, Julie was being honored, rightfully so, as the citizen hero. And I was there to speak on criminal justice reform and prison reform, and it's an issue that Charles Koch, 
and Coke Industries care deeply about, and, and we, we really focus on trying to help people improve their lives and advocating for policies that help people do that, uh, whether it's education reform, criminal justice reform, uh, you name it. That, that's what we're focused on. And it's for us, it's not a political issue. It's, a, it's what you should do in a free society, and you should try to help people. And people succeed by helping others succeed. And it, it, it's, it's uh, the type of society we believe needs to exist. So criminal justice reform is a part of what we believe deeply in and what we think needs to happen to help people improve their lives and to really start to um, help these communities that have been devastated by crime and poverty uh, recover and rebuild. So you have people not going to prison for offenses that are nonviolent or low-level nonviolent offenders, uh, finding diversionary paths, uh, whether it's mental health treatment, training, jobs, education, whatever it might be. Um, and so that, that's what I was there to talk about was the criminal justice reforms that we favor and why we think it will help bring about a freer and safer society so communities are safer, families can stay together, we can save money, save lives, help law enforcement do their jobs better. You know, you would have really uh, appreciated, Mark, and, and, and Julia's story we did about three months ago. It was a 4C court in Texas. And we now have had Judge Bobby Francis on any number of times. But this one in particular, we had a, a young lady named Lynette Niaves on, and she was a drug addict most of her life. Her mom was a drug addict. Her mom introduced her to meth when she was 12, and her boyfriend, of course, was a drug dealer. But she stumbles into this 4C court and this man named Bobby Francis. She's Hispanic. He's white. And she says, it's the father I never had, the structure I never had. And what's really amazing about the, these prison reform stories is that it saves lives and human potential isn't squandered. And so you're, 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 you've met this, this wonderful lady. And what do you talk about when you get uh, off stage? You, you bump into each other. You know you come from different worlds and yeah. very different political thoughts. But that's, not, that's the furthest thing from your minds. Yeah, and I don't know that we're that different worlds either. I grew up in a working-class background in the Northeast. Um, my mom worked. She was a clerk at City Hall. My dad was a salesperson. Um, and, you know, we, we didn't have much, but we had a strong family. My two sisters and what Julie was talking about with, um, you know, helping those who are less fortunate, we believe strongly in that as well. We were really strict Catholics. So, and my politics are, you know, I don't really know how to identify myself. I am a registered Republican, but I don't really identify with either party and a lot of politics that these days really um, leave me feeling cold a lot of times, particularly at the national level. So what happened, though, was after the I got done with my speech, I walked off the stage, and I actually first met Linda, uh, Julie's sister, and Linda uh, came up to me and thanked me and uh, Julie's, Julie's an amazing person, and her sister Linda's an amazing person, and Linda does work with uh, youth, troubled youth, um, and she was talking about that's their, her and Julie's passion, and that right now she, they're struggling because they're in the middle of the trial for the, the person that hurt Julie. And I just said, you know, I'm so sorry. That was such an I remember I remembered when the incident occurred. It's such an awful thing. I'm really sorry. And then Julie came up to me, and, and, and Linda asked, can I help? can you help my sister? I said, absolutely, what can I do? And then Julie came up to me, and she started talking with me and explaining the situation with Blue Cross Blue Shield, and could I do something to help? 
and they just denied her claim. And I said, you know what, I, I will, I'll do something. I'm going to try to help you here. I, I will definitely do that. And so that stuck with me. Um, one thing that particularly stuck with me was Julie and the way she presented herself um, when she spoke at the, at the banquet. And she was so positive, just a great spirit within her, uh, such grace, such poise, no resentment, no bitterness. And, 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 you know, after everything she'd been through, and it was like, I was like, oh, my goodness. And here I am complaining when I got stuck in traffic. Right. And so that stuck with me. And anyway, after that, uh, after I met them, that conversation stuck with me. The experience stuck with me. I went back to Washington, D.C., where I'm temporarily living. And I told my wife and her sister and my oldest daughter about it and that I need, I need to help this person. We need to help them. And so I started to try to figure out ways that we could help them. And what I did was, <clears throat> excuse me, I talked to a friend of mine here in Washington who I work with whose best friend was a prosthetics engineer, a guy he went to school with. And I just wanted to learn more about prosthetics. But then more importantly, how do you deal with these insurance companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield when they deny coverage? And so got some information from him. I called a close friend of mine in Wichita, Kansas, who was uh, close friends with Representative Mike Pompeo, who's our congressman in Wichita. is going to be the CIA director if he's confirmed, which I hope he will be. And uh, Mike's wife, Mike Pompeo's wife, Susan, to see if they could help. And um, the Pompeos really worked hard at it to try to push Blue Cross and Blue Shield to do the right thing, but to no avail. And so what happened was that was October and it was sometime in uh, December, beginning of December, I was, Julie and I had been emailing and texting, and she told me that the, the hearing for the guy, that her assailant, uh, was going to be coming up and could I attend. And I, at first I said, I'm out of town, but then I shifted my schedule because I wanted to be there to support her, and I showed up at the hearing, saw her sister again, and saw Julie again. And that was a very emotional time as well, and Julie and her sister were amazing in court. Again, just that they... they the way they present the information, it's not in a bitter way or a mean way or an angry way. It's in, a, it's in a righteous way. And it's also, you can tell they're empathic, yet they've obviously been the victims, the whole family, of this horrific crime by this person who was a horrible person, quite frankly. But they still had such grace. And when it got done, they both told me again that you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield wasn't budging. And I said, uh, I told Linda, her sister, and I told Julie, I promise you, you're going to get the hands, you're going to get the arms. And at that hearing also was Steve Peoples of Peoples Prosthetics in Wichita, Kansas, who Julie mentioned earlier, an amazing guy. I talked to him. I asked him if he could call me. I gave him my business card. I want to talk to him about trying to find a way to get the arms because my sense was that the insurance company wasn't going to do the right thing, but I wanted to do the right thing. My wife and I did. And so uh, that's what we did. I then got into a discussion with Steve, and he was able to get me access to the arms, and um, we, we, we bought them. We bought the arms, and then that Monday, the following Monday, I think it was like, I forget now, might have been the 19th, um, but whatever date it was, um, I had told Julie that my wife and I wanted to come out and see her. I wanted to introduce her to my wife that morning uh, before I went out to to Julie's and John's for lunch with Louise, my wife, I stopped by People's Prosthetics, paid for the arms, and we went out to Julie's house. And what, and, 
<laughs> what a gift that is. That's a that's just really remarkable. When we come back, we're right at the end of this segment. Mark, we're going to ask you about that moment. And then, Julie, we're going to bring you back. And by the way, so often in our lives, we pass people that, well, we have a connection with, and then we leave it go. But that didn't happen here. I'm sure that Mark stayed on Julie's mind. Julie stayed on Mark's. And look what can happen in life when we follow these things down. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our Coming Together series and segment continues with Julie Dombo and Mark Holden. Our American Stories, the final segment in our Coming Together Hour. Julie Dombo, Mark Holden, and when we last left off, Mark had decided, heck, these insurance companies, or this insurance company in particular, is just not doing the right thing. It's time for me and my family to do the right thing. And so you've got your hands on these prosthetics, literally. And talk about that moment, Mark, where you and your bride, you and your bride present this offering, this beautiful gift to Julie. Yeah, no, it was, um, it, it, it's one of the, I'm going to just say one of the greatest moments of my life to be able to help someone like Julie and John and her family. And, you know, it's one of these deals, I truly believe people have put in our paths for a reason. And that was, you know, there, there's a lot here that I could talk more about, but Julie was definitely deserving. So we showed up at John and Julie's house and John greeted us and I had the two boxes with the arms with me. And he said, uh, what's in there? And I said, it's a Christmas present. And so then we walked into the house, and Julie was standing at the top of the stairs. And she looked at me, and she had kind of a smile and on her face and a little bit of a disbelief. She said, Mark, what's in those boxes? And I said, Julie, you remember when we met in October, and you told me that you wanted help getting your arms? Well... I, we did that. We we bought your arms. Merry Christmas! It's our gift to you, and uh, that was it. It was a very nice moment. And in the in the Washington Post, it read, "quote She just lit up." Mark said, "It's like she got the arms on, and they energized her." Julie, uh, talk about that gift. What was your reaction at the time? And even as we as we think about it today, um, how it impacted you, and how you thought about such things down the road. I was shocked when Mark brought the arms up and I recognized the touch bionic boxes. I, it still wasn't clicking with me that those were my hands. It was like a shock. And when I had that grin, I knew touch bionic boxes. And when Mark said, Merry Christmas, I bought your hands, I just really freaked. I started crying. Uh, smiling, I was in total shock that he and his wife would do this for me when I really was a virtual stranger. I agree with Mark says, sometimes people's paths cross for a reason. I really 
believe that. And that was such a chance moment to be at that banquet and to connect with Mark and for him to come to my victim impact statement meant so much to me. But when he said, uh, you're going to get those hands, my sister and I didn't know how he was going to do that because it never crossed our mind that he and Louise would spend that much money on them. They are super expensive. Nobody does that for one human being. And so the reality it's still setting in for me that those hands are mine. And each day I put them on, I think of Mark and Louise. And they're very technical, and I'm 62, so I'm working really hard at figuring out all the technology, practicing holding things without dropping them, picking things up, uh, what things can I pick up off the floor of the table, what things can I do with them. So I have a wide open world of figuring out what I can do with these hands. But it's such a sense of relief as I practice with my OT gal and by myself or with John that they're mine. You know, before when I practiced with them, I kept thinking this is temporary. Touch Bionics is going to take them back when Blue Cross Blue Shield does their final uh, rejection, Touch is going to take them back. They're not really mine, and I'm going to go back to these hooks with this harness <laughs> or learning how to do things with no hands, which you've got to just imagine going through a day, one day with no hands, and all the things that you do with your fingers. Nobody realizes what a miracle our hands are until we don't have them. So what Mark and Louise Holden did for me and Steve Peoples has just, there, there's no words. My husband and I have no words for how much gratitude we have for these people. Well, and, you know, we do a segment regularly, just a generosity segment, and it is it is astounding the, the 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 comments we get, the mailings we get, and generally two things happen when we're asking people for acts of kindness and random acts of kindness. The person who receives is so touched that though they may have been generous in the past, it unleashed a new kind of generosity. And for the person who gave, well, the the, the gift of giving may be even greater than the gift of receiving. Mark, talk about that because so much. Uh, so much is not written about this subject of generosity and, by the way, its companion, gratitude. Yeah, no, it's, um, again, like I said earlier, when I first met Julie at that banquet, I, I was having a real humbling moment that this woman who'd been through, through so much was so strong and so positive. And I just, I feel a lot of times I whine about my circumstances and I have absolutely nothing to whine about. So, I mean, my point of view is that it really... And, and again, it was how I was raised and how I try to live my life, that when you can help someone, you should help them. It's the right thing to do. That's what we are really, truly here for on Earth. Um, and again, going back to what I said about the way we look at things from where I work with Charles Koch, helping people improve their lives, this is all part of the same thought process. And I was able to help someone like Julie and her family. I, I, was, I was proud to do it. I, I was, I'm, I'm very glad I did it. 
it's the right thing to do. And, and I think that at some point in time, at some day, if anyone who, you know, my family or a loved one needs something, I'd want them to do the same thing. It's, uh, you know, for what whatsoever you do uh, to people you don't know, to the least of my brothers, that you do unto me. Um, that's in the Bible. And it is why we're here on earth at the end of the day is to try to help people. And this is a way I could help someone and my wife could help someone in a very tangible way, someone who was so deserving and had been so obviously the victim of that horrible crime and then the victim of uh, the insurance company not doing the right thing. And so we were just being really grateful to be able to do it, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. That's great, and you're right. There is a double victim status here. And what's fascinating is, is that you, know, you, you spent your life, in the end, Julie, helping people. I mean, you, you, you were working with kids your whole life and giving actually your life to people. So your generosity was just remarkable, and you knew hard work. And, and frankly, both of you came from you know, working-class circumstances, so you had so many things in common. And again, in this current climate, too often we'll try and find those few things that seemingly separate people, and yet all these other things bring them together. Julie, talk, talk about you know, life going forward if you can, and talk about for our listeners this very unusual, this very unusual and beautiful friendship and where you think it's heading. Because I, I, something tells me that you and Mark will be talking for many, many years to come. I hope that Mark and I stay connected forever. I love this guy. We text every week. Every time I see his name on my phone, I light up. I'm excited to hear from him. And uh, I, I hope I'm not bugging him when I text him quite a bit. And sometimes my husband and my daughter say, don't, uh, don't be bugging him. He's a busy man. And I'm like, Mark and I have our own relationship. Don't worry about it. And I just start laughing because I can, I can just tell that Mark and I are connected on a whole personal level now. Uh, immediately because he's a kindred spirit. I could tell just by when he and his wife came out here and we talked about our families and our upbringing, we have a lot in common. Our parents both taught us both to give back to society, to give back to the less fortunate. Uh, I spent a lot of my money buying clothes or school supplies or things for kids in poverty that I was working with. And when I finally retired, I volunteered to work for free as the truancy counselor for my district because no one wanted to go out to the homes. They were scared. It didn't bother me. I was going to go out to those homes. I was going to make those calls trying to keep kids in school because that was my passion. And I can tell Mark has that same passion. The criminals that he's trying to help, are my former middle school That's right. students. That's right. I just told Mark one of my favorite students is in jail right now because he got caught selling drugs, and he's looking at five to ten years in prison for selling drugs. We are trying to help the same population and keep them in school. That was taken away from me with this incident. I'm going to have to be on a different path. But I have um, given three school assemblies. I hope to still go out and talk to kids and schools and people about being grateful for what you have in life. 
and giving back to society. Well, what a beautiful message, Julie and Mark. What a great story. And by the way, when you said, when I see his name on my phone, I light up. Don't we want that to be our name on someone's phone? Folks, it doesn't get better than this. The story of Julie Dumbo and Mark Holden here on our Come Together segment. Thank you both very much. Our, our audience really appreciates it. Thank you. Bye, guys. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. our American stories and you're listening to the iconic soundtrack from Rocky and on this day in history in 1976 the Rocky movie began production and we're going to spend an hour on this story because it's a classic American underdog story and not just the story of Rocky but the story of how Rocky got made and the story of Sylvester Stallone because his is an underdog story too and by the way, any movie that ever gets made is an underdog story. They have no chance of getting to the screen. If they do, it's a miracle. And if they connect with an audience like Rocky did, even more of a miracle. It was the longest of long shots, a low-budget boxing movie with a no-name star, Sylvester Stallone. Stallone was also the screenwriter, a task that he completed in just three days on the pages of a spiral notebook. Against all odds, it became a smash hit and spawned a seven-part film franchise that won three Oscars and pulled in over a billion dollars worldwide. And that's old dollars, not today dollars. And by the way, Creed, if you haven't seen it, and it's been out a while, on released on Netflix and wherever, ch- check it out. It's just so good. Maybe the best acting performance of Stallone's career. Rocky is more than a hero. He's an American icon, a symbol of heart, determination, dignity, hope, a no-luck palooka who inspired millions around the globe. But Rocky, the movie, was never a sure thing. Behind the scenes, the making of Rocky is as fascinating a story as the movie itself. The year, again, 1976. The Ramones were playing their first gig. Two friends formed a tiny computer company they called Apple. And a washed-up boxer was about to get his million-to-one shot. To tell this story, we are going to go directly to Sylvester Stallone, to the horse's mouth, the Italian stallion. Stallone was the product of a broken home in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood of New York City. He was a juvenile delinquent that got kicked out of a series of schools before turning 15. He attended high school in Philadelphia and studied drama at the University of Miami. He moved back to New York, got an apartment, and decided to try his hand at acting. But as any actor will tell you, the one commodity they all have an abundance of is spare time. Here's how Stallone spent that time. 
and I'd go out with my big pen and, and legal pad and just start writing these, these stories. And, and most of them were, were, were very, very trivial, but there was something about the process of unrealized dreams. I was always brought back to this subject because I think it's one of the most enduring subjects and one of the most difficult passages for people to accept that they never were realized in their own lifetime, that they just didn't get that shot. You know, I've been coming in for six years, and six years you've been sticking it to me. I want to know how come. You don't want to know. Yeah, I want to know how come. You want to know? I want to know how. Okay, I'm going to tell you. Because you had the talent to become a good fighter. And instead of that, you became a leg breaker. So I'm cheap, second-rate loan shark. To live in? It's a waste of life. The more I thought about this kind of street-like character that that just is totally misrepresented by the way he looks physically. Just the way he walks down the street was enough to, to say people, oh, dismiss him. He kind of looks like a bully or looks like a dark kind of character. And I thought, you know, that's an interesting character because they're always unrealized. Yep. And the wannabe actor left New York for Hollywood. He had scored a few small roles, but things were looking bleak. His wife was pregnant. His car was broken down. He had just $106 in the bank. In fact... Stallone had to sell his dog Butkus in order to make ends meet. Then one night, Stallone saw a fight between Muhammad Ali and a local brawler named the Bayonne Bleeder, a 30-to-1 underdog. And what I saw was pretty extraordinary. I saw a man they called the Bayonne Bleeder who didn't have a chance at all against, you know, the greatest fighting machine, supposedly, that ever lived. Body back, slips a punch to his left. Oh, a vicious shot to the rib of Muhammad Ali, and what a surprise! And for one brief moment, this supposed stumble bum turned out to be magnificent in the fact that he lasted and knocked the champion down. I said, boy, if this isn't a metaphor for life, his entire life crystallized at that moment. He will be remembered for all eternity, at least among the fight fans. He did something extraordinary. I said, now that, that is probably what I need as a catalyst for an idea, a man who's going to stand up to life and take one shot and maybe go the distance. And by the way, the Bayonne bleeder was Chuck Wepner, and that Bayonne is Bayonne, New Jersey, not far from where I grew up. Full of inspiration, Stallone would scratch out a screenplay by hand in, again, a mere three days. So I started to write, and it was one of those writing frenzies. And three days later, I came up with the script of Rocky. Now, the script by no means was a finished piece of material. It was probably about 90 pages, and maybe 10% of it remained in the final script, but it was done. Originally in Rocky, the character was very dark. As a matter of fact, uh, he throws the fight at, at the very end, and Mickey himself turns out to be this very angry, racist man. And, and uh, the reason, actually, Rocky throws the fight because he didn't want to be involved in this kind of world. He just he said, you know, I'd rather be who I was, and to just have all this hatred around me and so on. I remember showing it to my wife. She goes, oh, I don't like it. Rocky seems so nasty, so this, so that. Because I had made him very, very street-like and, and, and unrepentant. You know, he didn't have the kind of uh, attitude that eventually he ended up with. So I went back and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. And that's what all writers have to do in the end is go back and rewrite and rewrite and his wife did him a great service telling him she didn't like it. 
And I'm sure he didn't want to hear that right then from his bride. But one thing you're going to get always from a wife who loves you is the truth. When we come back, more on this story, this day in history. Rocky began production. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue with our This Day in History series always brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College and this one is of course Rocky and on This Day in History the production of that movie began and we left off with Stallone talking about scratching out his screenplay by hand then while out on one of his acting auditions Stallone got a big break not in acting but in writing I first met uh, Bob Shardoff and Erwin Winkler, and I believe I was there on, on a, a, a casting call. So we're talking a little bit, and I guess I really wasn't right for the acting part. And on the way out, I said, oh, I don't know if it matters, but I do a little bit of writing. He goes, really? I said, yeah, I'm writing this, this story. This, uh, I have this thing about wrestlers, and I might do something about boxing. Well, he says, well, bring it around. And I thought... If I hadn't stopped on the way out, you know, that's why I tell all actors or writers, don't give up, keep talking. Eventually you might hit a nerve somewhere and they go, ah, come on back. And if they didn't say, come on back or bring it later and let's see what you've developed, I wouldn't be sitting here. So I have to give incredible credit to their, uh, to their insight and their patience and they're willing to take a chance, which um, it doesn't exist much anymore unfortunately. And it is unfortunate. Well, they read Stallone's script, but little do these producers know that the lead role had already been cast. Originally, when I brought the script to them, they were fairly enthusiastic about it. The one thing they were not enthusiastic about was me playing the part, and and I really can't blame them. At the time, Ryan O'Neill was a candidate, Burt Reynolds, Robert Redford, Jimmy Kahn, and they all you know, were, were at the top of their game. And so I could see it, but there was something inside of me that, that you know, this opportunity is never going to come around. And I really wasn't used to money, and I had no idea of what I would be missing. But the temptation started to come forward. First it was uh, twenty-five grand, then $100,000. I, I never heard of 100000 because I had had like one hundred six dollars in the bank and like I said I had to sell my dog and things were not looking very very good uh, my $40 car had just blown up so I was taking a bus to work and but still it, it didn't matter I wanted to stick with it then it went up to 150,000 175,000 it went up to 250,000 now my head was starting to spin and it went up to 330,000 and probably I heard it went up to 360,000 and I thought all right you know 
you've really managed poverty very well. You've got this down to a science. You really don't need much to live on. I had, I had like sort of figured it out. So I was not um, in in any way uh, used to to the good life. So I thought, you know what? If I, I know in the back of my mind, if I sell this script and it does very, very well, I'm going to jump off a building. And if I'm not in it, there's no doubt about it. I'm going to leap in front of a train. I'm going to be very, very upset. So this is one of those things where you just roll the dice and you fly by the proverbial seat of your pants and say, all right, I got to try it. I got to just do it. I may be totally wrong and I'm going to be taking a lot of people down with me, but I just believe in it. Stallone trained six hours a day for five months to don Rocky's boxing gloves, popping vitamins and hitting the gym to develop his 46-inch chest and 16-inch biceps. Then on January 9, 1976, Sly Stone began filming Rocky. It was the first feature-length movie to employ the Steadicam, which was used primarily in the fight scenes and the scenes of Rocky running in Philadelphia during his training. Shot in just 28 days on a measly $950,000 budget, the film left literal marks on the actor-screenwriter. We didn't have really the, the money to shoot a normal Union film at that time in Philadelphia, so we would travel in a van. I would jump out of the van, and uh, we were working with the handheld camera at the time with, with Garrett Brown, and it was uh, somewhat experimental. And he'd film me running through shopping malls and up down the steps and flights, uh, I mean, curved corridors along the river until finally my legs basically gave out and I'm like writhing on the ground and I want to rise up and say, John, I'm dying here. And he goes, no, no, use it. Use the pain. I said, for what? I mean, I'm in misery. He goes, well, no, no. You know, it's giving your character, it's giving him some depth. I said, it's giving me bruises. It's giving me, like, agony. I can't sleep at night. But, you know, John would use... One thing about John, he would use the environment. If he saw, like, the scene where we just jumped down and saw this ship along the dock, this uh, uh, docked along the pier, and he said, just jump out, run as fast as you can along the ship. And, and, and I'm running and running. I said, you know what? My legs are buckling. I'm, I'm literally going to crash down here. Teeth are going to go, jaw face i'm just going to be ground down to this flat-faced image please and, and i just barely made it as john had had me, he would have me run and run and jump park benches and down streets and people are throwing things at me like when i had the orange thrown at me and i'm these people had no idea who i was i was just some strange alien invader in a well-worn tattered baggy <laughs> incredibly <laughs> ugly sweatsuit running through their neighborhood you know and they're like throwing things at me and we kind of like made it work but actually was like i thought they were trying to hit me with the orange and when it came to casting the reigning world heavyweight champion apollo creed stallone wanted a real boxer ken norton auditioned but he was too big when joe frazier showed up for the role he gave stallone four stitches in the first 11 seconds during a light sparring session the search continued a hollywood cattle call was announced when a former NFL linebacker named Carl Weathers showed up to audition around 10 o'clock at night. He walks in, and he starts to audition, and he's doing the lines well, and then he gets up, and he starts to box with me a little bit, and he bangs two or three off my head. I said, geez, this guy has, 
he really doesn't care if he gets to the park, does he? I mean, he's like he's putting lumps on my forehead, and he's really into it. Then he sits back down. He goes, uh, Mr. Allison, I could do much better if you had a real actor reading with me. He goes, well, Carl, that's Rocky. That's the guy who wrote the script. He goes, oh, maybe he'll get better. <laughs> you know what? I said, please, hire him. Uh, he's great. He's good. That's exactly the attitude I wanted. He was fantastic, and he still is. And by the way, how many men would have said that if they wrote it and wanted to start it? Would have taken that insult. But Sylvester Stallone knew what he wanted, and he knew the attitude and the cockiness he needed. And that's about as cocky as you get. Maybe he'll get better. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And Rocky, well... We're going to get to more of the uh, more of the backstory, but this particular part is what hits us the most. And a lot of people say it's a boxing movie, but it's as much of a boxing movie as Gone with the Wind is a movie about the Civil War. In the end, Rocky's a story about us. It's a story about America. Boxing's just a backdrop. It's a tale of two misfits, Rocky and Adrian, who find strength in each other. They originally considered Susan Sarandon, Cher, and Bette Midler for part. Here's Stallone on casting Rocky's love interest, Adrian, played by Francis Ford Coppola's sister, Talia Shire. Talia Shire was also um, a last-minute choice because we, we just couldn't find the right person. And then she came in, and it was, I think, the same night as Carl Weathers. A very, very... I, I think it was. And she came in, and we just read, and I felt... The Earth Move. I, I really felt a tremendous vitality and kinship. I mean, I loved her. I really, really loved her. I just loved the way she looked and the way she... she her hair fell in, in this timid, fragile creature. I said, just incredible. And the perfect voice. So, when we were going to do uh, Rocky meets her, and he, he, he just talks to her, and, and, and he sees a beauty in her, that no one else sees because everyone has something to do. Rocky really has nothing to do. So he moves at a much slower pace and he observes and he sees things that other people don't see. So he's trying to bring her out because I guess he feels that she's probably the only one who's worse off than he is. So he's feeling kind of like a little protective towards her. And the sequence where we're supposed to go ice skating, originally that was written for 300 extras and it was a big deal. Well, I show up on the set. They said, we have a slight change in plans. And when we come back, we're going to hear what those change of plans, what they entailed. We're talking about Rocky. And on this day in history, production began on this iconic movie from the most unlikely of people. This out-of-work, well, never-before-published screenwriter who, well, not much money was spent on the budget. We learned it was low budget. We learned there were unorthodox ways of filming it because there wasn't much of a budget, and look what we get. And he says no, by the way, to all the big stars in the casting call for the women and goes with an unlikely Talia Shire. When we come back, more on the story of Rocky. This is Our American Stories, our This Day in History segment, as always, brought to us by Hillsdale College.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with Sylvester Stallone's story. And we love when we can to bring it right again from the horse's mouth. Nobody else here, nobody's opinions. We're hearing from Sylvester Stallone himself about the remarkable story of how Rocky got made, how it got cast, some of the innovations, including that steady cam. So much of this movie could not have been shot. So many of the scenes could not have happened without this camera that sat on someone's shoulders and they just sort of followed Rocky around. That meat locker scene where Rocky's punching out the meat, that just couldn't have happened without the Steadicam. Not on that budget. And again, they had a budget of $950,000. And when we left off, Talia Shire was, well, of course, Rocky's pick. And by the way, some of the other actresses in contention were Cher and Bette Midler and Susan Sarandon, but Stallone... Well, there was just something about Talia Shire. Let's pick up where he left off. We have one extra. I said, interesting. And um, I said, well, I have a, an interesting thing uh, to tell you, too. I don't ice skate. I don't know why I wrote it, but I thought it'd be interesting. So here we are with an empty arena, and uh, I don't really skate at all. So I decided I was going to run on ice, and she really, she says she skates, but if you watch her, her ankles are falling in, and she's barely holding on, and Rocky's trying to explain his life, looking cool, and he looks like so foolish, but she doesn't care, and where they really come together at that moment when he goes, you know, my father said I wasn't born with much of a brain, he goes... Uh, my mother, my mother, she says sort of the same thing. She says, you weren't born with much of a body, so you better start developing your brain. It's like, oh, these two people are two halves that absolutely need to fit together. You know, they are really on the same page. Then he walks her home. I think we make a real sharp couple of coconuts. I'm dumb and you're shot. What do you think? And I'm starting to, like, realize that this is the key to the film. This is the heartbeat. The whole, The whole movie is going to be based on the discovery of these two people, the love. She goes upstairs, and now she's, like, terrified because this is not exactly what you call a swinging bachelor apartment. And the moment when he when he gets her to that that door, all of a sudden the, the whole facade changes. He no longer looks like this terrifying guy. He goes, you know, would you take off your glasses? And she really looks... If you ever watch that scene closely, you'll never see better responding by an actress to an awakening inside of like really feeling like someone truly loves her that it's like she's dying she's never felt this before and coming from this man who is you know this physical kind of specimen the last kind of guy she ever imagined herself being with it it just I mean I, I disappear in that scene she is just off the chart you want to kiss me back if you don't want. I don't want to kiss you. Meanwhile, Stallone and the producers knew just whom they wanted to cast as Mickey, the trainer. I'd written it for Lee J. Cobb, who I thought it was brilliant and on the waterfront, and he had the part. And then the director goes, okay, uh, let's turn to page 16 and read. He goes, excuse me. I had Lee J. Cobb come in for the Mickey role and asked him to read, and he became very indignant that he didn't read. You guys, I've done about 60 movies. John said, yeah, you buy a Rolls Royce, you still want to drive it around the block. Because <laughs> the last time I read was for a radio show in 1936. So if you wanted this jockey, you should hire one. I don't read. He looked at Sly, and he said, if I could write like you, I never would have been an actor. And he walked out. 
Even though I lost the great Lee J. Cobb, Lee Strasberg, Lou Ayers, and all these great characters, Broderick Crawford, but then in walked Burgess and Bingo. He had no problem with uh, auditioning. He came in and we read the scene where Rocky's thrown out of his locker and he comes and complains to Mickey. First time we meet Mickey. Came to the end of the scene and as Rocky turns to walk away, Burgess says, hey, Rock. Well, that's not in the script. Sylvester said, yeah. He said, hey, you ever thought about retiring? And, and Sylvester said, no. You think about it. I said, great. That's perfect. You got the part. That's just what he would say. And then there's that music that has become as well-known as the movie itself. A minuscule 25000 all-in music budget meant several established composers passed on the project. Here's Bill Conti, the music composer for Rocky. So I did about a minute. I had dun da 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 and a da 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 in a faster kind of way. I said, you got to make it a little bit longer. He says, man... I need another 30 seconds. I shot about five miles of slide doing one-on push-ups and medicine balls. Could I have another 30 seconds? So it kept growing and growing. By the end, of course, it ended up being what it is. It sounded great. I said, you know, you ought to put some lyrics to this thing. This sounds like a song. We had a lyricist on the project, and John says, well, can't we say something? I says, well, we've hired two lyricists. You can say anything you want. So he said, oh, okay, and that's how Gonna Fly Now came to be. And imagine that, again, one of the most iconic music soundtracks of all time, done for a shoestring budget of $25,000. If you ever get a chance and you're a movie fan, um, by the way, see and read Truffaut and Hitchcock. It's the great Francois Truffaut interviewing Hitchcock. And then there's an HBO film about those interviews that you can't stop watching. But there's a book by Bernard, about Bernard Herrmann, and that is... Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's composer for all of his movies, and I I don't think many people think there were many better soundtracks than Hitchcock movies. And the the best one, the most iconic one, sprung from no budget. It turns out Psycho was made, and Alfred Hitchcock tested it, and it tested terribly. So he wasn't going to have it be a movie. He was going to stick it into Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Bernard Herrmann saw it said, hey, let me play with that. And generally, he had full orchestras. But in this particular instance, he just took four violins. And that famous shower scene came about because Bernard Herrmann thought he could add something to the, to the subtext of this great movie. And to this day, that is one of the most iconic sound sequences in the history of movies, right along with that, that sharp and simple uh, violin and string sequence in Jaws. And again, Bernard Herrmann talking about his ability to adapt with no money and do great things. And again, as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And by the way, Hillsdale now has a dozen courses up online. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, well, they can get to you. And it's everything from the Constitution, Constitution 101, straight to their magnificent, magnificent uh, 10-part course on C.S. Lewis. And you want to talk about a storyteller from the Chronicles of Narnia, straight through to, well, screw tape letters, and mere Christianity may be the greatest piece of basic theology ever written that anybody could access and understand. Again, that's Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu. And when we come back, we're going to close out our hour 
on Rocky. And again, what an unlikely story. My favorite part so far is that this guy somehow managed to hold out on a $360,000 advance when he didn't have two nickels to rub against one another. And also that he had the audacity walking out of that audition to talk to two of the biggest producers in the world and tell them he had a script like they'd care. And by the way, that those two guys listened and didn't say, get the heck out of here, kid, because that's the other side of that story. Those guys could have said, you're a bum. Get out of here. Who asked you? And you can imagine all the other pejoratives that could have come their way. But Erwin Winkler knew better. And my goodness, what a decision he made. What a decision he made. When we come back, more on the Rocky story on this day in history. Production began. Let's listen to Bill Conti's soundtrack as we go out. You've heard it a million times, but now you know it was made for next to nothing. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories and our final segment in this hour-long celebration of Rocky and the day that movie's production began in 1976 on this day in history. And where we left off in this pretty amazing story, that iconic ending where Rocky embraces Adrienne in the ring was not originally written that way. The original ending of Rocky was... uh quite different than what we have now. The original ending was he he goes the distance and he's looking for Adrian. The crowd is starting to disperse. You know, one minute after the fight, yes, he, he did a noble thing, but time moves on. The, the champion is carried out of the ring and Rocky starts to meander through the crowd. He eventually gets to the curtain. He pulls back the curtain at the back of the arena and sees Adrian. And she gives him a, a slight hug, and he picks up this small pennant, like a flag, and hand in hand, they start to walk back to the rock, locker room. There's no one talking to him anymore. There's just trash strewn everywhere, and they just see these two solitary figures moving off into the distance, off into, like, you know, being anonymous forevermore. But they just had that moment, and, and the... All he could think about was how much he loved her and just getting back to his life again, the real life. And it just didn't seem very, very satisfying. So after we had done that, and that was the poster shot, we thought, boy, wouldn't it be interesting to catch a man's moment, a man's life at the quintessential seminal moment. So we went back and 
I have friends in the scene. I have producers in the scene. We had about 30 people. We only had the money to do like one quarter of the ring, so just a little corner. And you see these people going around in a circle, milling around, and, and crowds, and Rocky's going, oh, I, you know, just get everything out of my face. He's yelling for Adrian, Rocky, Adrian, Rocky. And they had someone, as as Adrian is running to the ring, again, very, very tight, they had... Uh, like fishing line connected to her hat and they pull her hat off so because I thought wouldn't it be interesting that the first thing Rocky says when she comes into the ring is like where's your hat I mean he's so into her into like the way she looks and that he doesn't care that his eyes are swollen shut his hands are smashed and that he's done the greatest thing in his life he doesn't say look at me he goes where's your hat and he's like I love you he goes, you know I love you too yeah, I mean, the visual's working, the sound is working, the body movements are all coming together at this absolute peak. And right there, when I embrace her, uh, I was sitting with John Amelson, and he, we froze right on the single frame when he is looking elated, and he has her in his arms, and it's just this look of ecstasy. And the next frame, it went like, uh, it just deflated. I said, there it is. From that moment on, it's all downhill. I mean, how we all hit this absolute maximum of elation and celebration. And, you know, that can only be sustained for, like, just an infinitesimal moment in time. And if you can just can you imagine how, how great it would be just to freeze on that moment. And that's how we froze Rocky, that the original Rocky, he went out at the height his, his, his life will never be more rewarding or more important or more valid than that second. And it's, it was a very, very difficult thing to do. I've been trying to do it in films ever since to bring all those three elements together at the exact instant. Is, um, it, it was like a minor miracle. And indeed it was. And so we've learned all about how this unlikely film came to be. It's finished. It's wrapped up. But, you know, you never know what you have. And before a film goes to full theatrical release, well, it gets shown around to people and to influencers. And back then, well, the Directors Guild of America is where this film got shown in some of the initial showings. And you can imagine how nervous Sylvester Stallone is. I mean, he's passed up real opportunities. If he blows this movie, by the way, it's on him. He can't blame someone else for messing it up. And by the way, the Directors Guild is an entertainment guild representing all the directors in cinema, television, and radio. Then finally, it was being shown at the Directors Guild, and this was going to be the test. And there was about 900 people invited, and it was a packed crowd, and the movie was playing terribly. My mother was sitting next to me, and the laughs weren't coming with us, folks, too, and the fight itself seemed to be listless the response was and i sat there as everyone filed out of the theater and i couldn't believe it i said ma i really blew it it was all like i don't know it was, it was nice while it lasted but i guess when you get down and you show it to the big boys they're just not buying it anyway i sat there and literally there was no one left in the theater because i didn't want i was humiliated and saddened by the whole thing and even you know i walked her out and I was walking down the steps, and there's three flights down, first flight, second flight, and then by the time I turned for the third flight, the entire audience was down there. There was 900 people waiting, and they started to applaud. 
And I mean, truly applaud. And I said, how could you doubt me, Mom? I'm shocked. <laughs> and it's like, I really, I just completely came apart. And there's, there's, so there'll never be a moment like that ever. I mean, I truly was over. I said, this is it. I'm just going to you know, go back home, take my dog, and go back into, you know, trying to eat out a living. And they were all there. And they responded in a way. It's like, I don't know if that's the way they did things in Hollywood, but they saved it up, and I'll never get over that moment. I just looked at all these people, and they were applauding. And it's been all downhill since. <laughs> <laughs> And he remembers that like it happened to him yesterday. And then the question becomes this. Why does Rocky resonate with so many people? Rocky never expected to win. Never. He knew it. He was that much of a realist. And I, I like, admired the character for that because so often I had gone to uh, fight films and or sporting films. Yes, we're going to go out there. We're going to knock him out. You're going to win. I said, no, because I'm not going to win. I'm going to get destroyed. But if I can just be lucid, if I can still be standing on my feet, you know what? Then life isn't so bad. And I think, again, symbolically, at the very end of our lives, if we can still say, you know, I lived life with integrity and I took all the blows, as the song says, and I'm, I still prevailed, I think that's... A, that's a, a good epitaph for anyone. And that's what I tried to capture in this film. And again, if you get the chance to see Creed, if you've seen the others and you haven't seen Creed yet because you're thinking, why do I want to watch a movie where uh, Rocky Balboa is now a washed-up restaurant owner? I mean, I'm not interested. I'm, I'm promising you, you won't be disappointed. It may be the best Rocky movie. And that's hard for me to say because the first one's so good and Rocky Two is so good. This is a case where the remakes were really great and people would actually argue about which remake was the best. Or... Four, says Hengler. Hengler says four. And well, me, one and two are great, but Creed is just, it kills me. And at the 1977 Academy Awards, Rocky was nominated in no fewer than ten categories. Not bad for a debut, huh? Including just these minor things like best actor, best original screenplay, and he ended up winning, they ended up winning three Oscars this movie. Best director, Best Picture, and Best Film Editing. And those are three, by the way, heavyweight awards for the Academy. And so we're going to leave this segment with these parting words from the champ. Let's take a listen. It almost seems like, like a dream state. And quite often people said, or people will say, God, it must have been incredible. I said, yeah, but I was never there. And now when I sit back and I reflect on it, how, what a, an incredible miracle. Every day, I truly miss that character so much. I tell you, sometimes I could just cry because I'll never have a voice like that again where I can just speak whatever I feel in my heart. Um, that's the one thing I'll always cherish about that character because... If I say it, you won't believe it. But when Rocky said it, it was the truth. Yep, and a great writer, William Faulkner, once said, all autobiography is fiction, and all fiction is autobiography. And I don't think there's been better and truer words spoken 
about writing and the written word. And we got to thank Sylvester Stallone for that, for offering that up to the public. Uh, you can go on YouTube and catch so much good stuff about the making of Rocky. But we thought we'd bring you it from Stallone's mouth himself. And you could tell he stumbled on something. He just knew he stumbled on it. And it all goes back to watching that fight. Chuck Wepner, the Bayonne bleeder. Muhammad Ali just saying, hey, let's do it on a lark. Let's this give this guy a shot. Nobody gave him a chance. And he put the champ down. I'll never forget that because I'm a Jersey kid rooting for this Jersey guy to just make it through a round. I mean, people thought he wouldn't survive a round. And Stallone had the sense to know what was going on there and frame a movie around that feeling, that thought, that idea, that character. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this, Greg. Our This Day in History segments always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great, great online courses on This Day in History. In 1976, Rocky began production.